and a very, very Merry Christmas to everyone listening. Welcome back to Geeking Destination Venus. Reggie here again with an hour of geeky festivities. But first, um, how can I put... Oh, look, I wasn't going to do news this week, all right? I was going to give it a news-free week and just talk about some Christmas geeky traditions. But events have a way of happening and an event has happened. You may remember that last week I reported that the independent comics publisher Aftershock was getting some flack online for not paying its people. At the time, Aftershock was making noises about, yeah, just bear with us, just bear with us, it's fine, we've got this. I I guess they were thinking, you know, sort of talking about cash flow issues, that kind of thing. But they were very clear that everyone was going to get paid eventually. Now, less clear, because Aftershock have gone into Chapter 11 bankruptcy. Now, if you are not familiar with US bankruptcy legislation, basically what this, this is generally referred to as um, reorganization bankruptcy. The idea is that the organization has to put together plans to keep the business alive and show how it's going to pay its creditors over time. So it's kind of a, okay, it's, it's an official recognition that they're in trouble, but there might be a way out of it. And look, this is not unprecedented in comics. Marvel themselves were in Chapter 11 in the 90s. Obviously, they were saved by being bought by Disney. I can't see that happening with Aftershock. Now, Aftershock has filed a reported 10 to $50 million in assets alongside 10 to $50 million in liabilities. Now, that strikes me as quite a wide band. They've given themselves a $40 million margin of error. I mean, if they've got $10 million of assets and $50 million of debt, that's a big problem. If they've got $10 million of assets and $10 million of debt, that's still a problem, but less of one. And so how big the issue with Aftershock might be is anybody's guess. We're going to have to see how this pans out as the new year unfolds. Um, But, you know, fairly obviously, this is a bad time of year for creators to discover that all of that money they're owed might not be arriving anytime soon. You know. Best wishes to everyone affected, and we will move on to happier things, because it's Christmas! And so, it is time to check out some geeky holiday traditions. I can tell you that my first annual rewatch of Hawkeye has happened. It stands up. Honestly, haven't watched it since last year. It is very much a Christmas show, I would argue. And it stands up. It survived its first year intact. Really enjoyed it second time around. If you have access to Disney+, and you have not watched Hawkeye... I can't recommend it highly enough, but we're not going to go into that this year because, you know, last year we talked about Hawkeye for six weeks running. So, you know, that's not the holiday tradition I want to get into, nor is my annual rewatch of Die Hard, which I don't want to get into the debate about whether Die Hard is a Christmas movie. I know having that debate is a geeky Christmas tradition. I'm not having it because I don't care. It's a movie set at Christmas. It's a movie that I only want to watch at Christmas. I don't know whether that makes it a Christmas movie or not. And honestly, I'm really not interested in arguing over definitions. But I've rewatched it, and uh, I think I'm with the meme. Christmas doesn't start until Hans Gruber falls off the Nakatomi building. Now he has. So there we go. No, I want to start with my Christmas tradition that's been a Christmas tradition for as long as I've consciously been a geek. And that's the tradition where I don't watch the Star Wars holiday special. Many years, I honoured this tradition by not watching the Star Wars holiday special 
because I couldn't. It was simply not available to me. Heard of it, but I had no way of getting hold of it. As far as I recall, it has not ever been broadcast in the UK. It was only broadcast once in the US. It has never been released on a legal VHS cassette. There has never been a DVD or a Blu-ray release, and it's not legally available to stream anywhere. That said, I have watched it. I did not watch it at Christmas, because Christmas is a happy time of year, and nobody wants it spoiled. And trust me when I tell you, watching the Star Wars Holiday Christmas Special is the surest way to ruin Christmas I can think of. So, why am I talking about it? Well, because it's famously bad, and the story behind it is, it's not just, funny's the wrong word, but it is a cautionary tale which one cannot help but chuckle at. So, here's what happened. Star Wars had happened in 1977. Star Wars was immense. It was the biggest film. It was all anybody was talking about. I was five years old when Star Wars came out, and as a five-year-old, I was utterly, utterly, utterly taken with it. Now, you must understand, I had not seen Star Wars at this stage. I knew the toys, and I knew that people were talking about it, and I loved science fiction, and the idea that there were things like guys with laser swords and things flying around the galaxy and a huge Death Star, and I, I was totally here for it. And do you know what? 45 years later, still am. But, but what I need to impress on you, if, if you're a young person and who can't remember Star Wars coming out, I need to impress on you how big it was. It was everywhere. It was everything. Nothing had ever been like it. And it's difficult to explain that now, because so much like it has happened since. But Star Wars was, love it or hate it, truly, truly groundbreaking. And people wanted more. Now, the sequel was in the works. In 1978, George Lucas had signed to do the sequel. Things were in, I, I suspect in 78, they were in, in sort of early stages of production. But there was a real appetite for more Star Wars. And so some people at the TV studios got together and said, well, hey, why don't we do a TV thing? Which seemed reasonable. And so they went to George Lucas, who said, yeah, let's do a TV thing. Except I can't, because I'm busy. So sorry, you're going to have to get somebody else to do it. And that may be the biggest mistake of George Lucas's life. Actually, actually, that might be the second biggest mistake of George Lucas's life. Perhaps the biggest mistake of George Lucas's life was that not only did he say, get someone else to do it, but when they said, well, what would you suggest? You know, do you have any ideas? He gave them a massive pile of, of, of files that he'd created on Wookiees and said, why don't you do something with Wookiees? And a bunch of TV producers from CBS in America said, OK, we don't know what that is. But if you say so, you're the guy who made the most popular movie of all time. We will trust you. So they took all this information about Wookiees and they went away. And George Lucas got back on with making The Empire Strikes Back, which was a good thing to have done. But of course, that left a bunch of TV producers with no experience of film and no experience of Star Wars in charge. Now, again, I need you to come back with me and understand how different 1978 was to now. Because now, anybody has a rough idea of what Star Wars is, and finding people with a passion for Star Wars, who know what they're doing, who understand the characters, who understand the world, who really get the franchise, finding those people now, that's not hard. In 1978, the people in charge of this stuff, they weren't sci-fi fans. 
they were a bunch of middle-aged men who probably had seen Star Wars, but didn't really get what made it so popular. They didn't really dig it. And so they lent on what they knew, and what they knew was making variety shows. And, you know, the late 70s, both in the US and the UK, was the peak golden age of the big variety show. Over here, you had stuff like the two Ronnies and Morecambe and Wise. And, yeah, you'd have a couple of comedy sketches, a little bit of stand-up. A band would come on and do some music. You might have a magician do a spot. You know, it was all kinds of different acts. It was very much like a a theatre variety show, what the Americans would have called vaudeville, what we would have called musical. That was, you know, big, the big Saturday night blockbuster entertainment thing of its day. And so that's what they set out to make. Now, I don't want to do anybody down here. I'm sure everybody was doing the best they could. And I'm sure, absolutely certain, in fact, that everybody thought they were making a hit. Well, everybody in production thought they were making a hit. We'll we'll get to what the actors thought later. But I really do honestly believe that nobody ever sets out deliberately to do a bad job. But People often do a really bad job by accident, and that, that is what happened here. First of all, the script. Oh my word, the script. The story itself is simple and uninspiring, but solid enough. It, It could have worked as a framework for hanging a variety show on. It could have worked. Basically what you've got is Han Solo and Chewbacca in the Millennium Falcon, right at the start, and... Chewie is really keen to get back to his homeworld. I always mispronounce, but I'm going to call it Krishik, to celebrate Life Day. There are some what Ben would call imperial entanglements that get in the way. Meanwhile, on Krishik, Chewie's family is preparing for Chewie to return to celebrate Life Day. And so we meet Chewie's wife, Chewie's son, and Chewie's granddad. Oh boy. Now, they are also having some issues with Imperial entanglements. There are some stormtroopers as an Imperial officer. They're making a nuisance of themselves. And, you know, with a little help from their friends, a little contact from Luke Skywalker and all the other characters, everything gets resolved. Life Day gets celebrated. Woohoo! Happy holidays! Now, as I say, as a story, uninspiring, fairly basic, fairly simple, could have worked. Didn't work because the execution was just so bad. Honestly, it's inexplicably bad. I mean, I don't understand how they got it this wrong. But get it wrong, my friends, they certainly did. For a start, there is a sequence where Chewie's wife, who for the purposes of this show is called Marla, is watching a cooking show and cooking along. The whole thing is in Wookiee. I forget what the Wookiee language is called, but it's called that, and it's not subtitled. There's about a nine-minute sequence where the Wookiees are talking to each other in Wookiee with no subtitles. There's no way of knowing what is going on at all. They might as well have made it in German. That would have been better. Quite a lot of people can speak German. There's a sequence where Chewie's son, Lumpy, watches a holographic show of some kind, which features, you know, jugglers and acrobats and stuff. And we watch him watching that. I mean, that's it. We watch him watching that. Again, for about five or six minutes. It's interminably long and unspeakably dull. And then, if that wasn't bad enough, there is a sequence where Chewie's granddad is given a present, which is essentially 3D porn, which he then sits and watches 
and we sit and watch him watch it, again, for minutes at a time. It's very uncomfortable viewing if you do it in company. So, yeah, prime time? There's other stuff as well. Uh, B. Arthur turns up as the you know, B. Arthur of the Golden Girls. That B. Arthur, she turns up as the landlady of the Mos Eisley Cantina, who is doing last call before Imperial curfew or something. Uh, that might be one of the highlights. And honestly, it's quite a low light. A video call with a very unenthusiastic and heavily made up Mark Hamill as Luke Skywalker. He'd just been in quite a serious accident and. I'm not entirely sure he, he will be able to remember doing this, so concussed was he. Um, I mentioned we see Han Solo and, and Chewbacca at the beginning. Um, Peter Mayhew, as Chewbacca, appears to be having lots of fun. I think Peter Mayhew quite liked being Chewbacca. Han Solo, however, um, less so. Um, Harrison Ford does not look in any way happy to be back in the cockpit of the Millennium Falcon. And... Not only is his performance kind of phoned in, I actually think his performance would have been better if he had indeed phoned it in. He really obviously does not want to be there. I think this is probably the very first evidence of Harrison Ford being really, really unhappy to be under contract to make this stuff. He very obviously doesn't want to be there. Uh, Alec Guinness as Ben Kenobi, very notable by his absence. And probably very relieved that his character was killed in the first movie because that meant they couldn't make him come back and do this. I don't think he was actually under contract. Everybody else is there. Darth Vader, he turns up. We get Princess Leia, she's there, singing a song about Life Day. And, look, I don't like to cast aspersions and she will always be royalty to me. But Carrie Fisher's issues with drug misuse are very well documented and... I'm really sorry, but look at her eyes in this show. She is very clearly off her face on coke and honestly, probably felt the better for it. Indeed, the joke about this holiday special for years has been that it could only have been made by a sentient bag of cocaine. Is genuinely wild. So yeah, it's bad, is what I'm saying. It's badly conceived and it's very, very badly executed, except there are a couple of things that make it very notable. For a start, James Earl Jones, who is famously the voice of Darth Vader, uh, dubbing over the West Country burr of the wonderful David Prowse. In the original Star Wars movie, which I'm still calling Star Wars, I'm 51, get over it. If you want to call it Episode 4 A New Hope, you are free to do so. It'll always be Star Wars to me. Anyway, the original Star Wars, James Earl Jones as the voice of Darth Vader is uncredited. So the Star Wars Holiday Special is the first time James Earl Jones is credited as the voice of Darth Vader. That's a weird fact, but it's a fact nevertheless. It's also notable for being the first time we see Boba Fett on screen, or indeed anywhere. Because dropped into this variety show that was broadcast at 7pm in the evening is a late 1970s Saturday morning style kids cartoon which is widely held to be the only thing about the holiday special that doesn't actually suck. It's presented as Chewie's son Lumpy watching a show about his dad's adventures and it's it's kind of cool 
you've got the Millennium Falcon, it crashes on a planet. The, the the crew, which features you know all of the main characters, are searching for some kind of talisman or something. And they meet a guy called Boba Fett who pretends to help them, but actually betrays them. And again, it's a simple story, but this time it's well told and well done. Uh, the look of Boba Fett isn't quite right. Apparently, the animators only had some photographs of the unfinished Boba Fett costume that would later be used in The Empire Strikes Back, but was not finished to go from. So the colours are wrong and all of that. It doesn't matter. It's actually quite cool. And available on Disney+, Plus, I think. And, you know, it's worth 20 minutes of your time, actually. It's not the best cartoon you'll ever watch. It's certainly not the best Star Wars cartoon you'll ever watch. But, yeah, it's not a waste of 20 minutes. Which, when compared against everything else in the special, is, trust me, very high praise indeed. And so the Star Wars Holiday Special kind of stands as a, a weird thing in geek culture where it's acknowledged that it's bad. Everybody agrees it's terrible, but we can't stop talking about it. Now, if you haven't seen it, as I say, that I cannot tell you to go and watch it because there is no legal way of doing so. I will point out that there are a couple of fairly decent versions of it available to stream on YouTube which neither Lucasfilm nor Disney has asked to be taken down, which, honestly, I'm choosing to believe is the tacit approval of Lucasfilm and Disney to keep this thing in circulation. George Lucas famously hates it uh, and would love to see every copy of it destroyed. As as a weird historical artefact from a time when Star Wars was not what Star Wars is now, and people didn't really understand the potential of it or what you could do with it. It's it's an interesting watch. As I say, my recommendation would be to not watch it at Christmas, because I just don't. But it is kind of a rite of passage. To be able to say that, yes, I've seen it, and it really is as bad as everybody says, is, is quite a thing. So that's the Star Wars Holiday Special. As I say, uh, you can, if you really wish, find it on YouTube. If it is that bad, why am I telling you about it now? Well, glad you asked, because I have finally watched the Guardians of the Galaxy holiday special, and I'm here to tell you that were it not for the Star Wars holiday special, the Guardians of the Galaxy holiday special would most definitely not exist. The difference is that the Guardians of the Galaxy holiday special, whilst it is a very simple story, a very hokey story, The Guardians of the Galaxy Holiday Special is actually good. Good enough that before I talk about any more, I'm going to do this. Spoilers! Spoilers! Because if you are listening to this on the day that it drops, it is not quite Christmas yet. And you may have been saving the Guardians of the Galaxy Holiday Special to watch maybe on Christmas Eve. If you are, then you're going to want to fast forward past the next 15 minutes or so of this show. Which means if you're listening live on Harrogate Community Radio, you might want to go and make quite a long cup of tea. So, is that everybody gone that needs to go? Yeah? You are right? Yeah? Okay. Right. Well, a couple of things, really, about the Guardians of the Galaxy holiday special. And actually, the first thing I'd like to, to just note is I saw somebody on Twitter calling the Guardians of the Galaxy holiday special woke on the grounds that it's the Guardians of the Galaxy holiday special and not the Guardians of the Galaxy Christmas special. All I'm going to point out to you 
is that the Star Wars Holiday Special came out in 1978. So I can't think of a year that was less woke than 1978, unless it was possibly 1977. So it's the Holiday Special because it's American and the Americans have always said happy holidays. And don't let anybody tell you different. They're just wrong. Also, just as a gen gentle aside, nobody wants you to stop saying happy Christmas anyway. They really don't. But all that aside, is the Guardians of the Galaxy holiday special any good? Well, yes. And it's good for several reasons. And it's good for several reasons that the Star Wars holiday special was not good. First of all, every single person involved on screen appears to actually be enjoying themselves. Now, they may be acting, they are after all actors, but they all look like they want to be there. Which, as previously noted, is not something that can be said for several of the actors in the Star Wars holiday special. The second reason that it's good is that it's good. It's actually well made and well performed and well acted. The special effects are good. Everything is top notch. The story is the kind of hokey nonsense that only works at Christmas, but it's Christmas, so that doesn't actually matter. So what happens? Well, we start with a little animated section in which a very young Peter Quill tries to explain Christmas to Yondu and the Reavers. And we see that Yondu is not impressed. He thinks that giving stuff to people is weak and that accepting stuff from people is weak. He thinks if you see something you want, you should take it. And that is the culture he wants to protect. And so he forbids Peter to do Christmas. And he kicks all the stuff around and he thumps the tree in the bin. Then we cut to a live action adult, Peter Quill, who is telling this story to Mantis and Drax, the other guardians. And Mantis is quite affected by this. Mantis is, after all, a very emotional creature. And she wants to do something to make amends. So she talks to Drax and they decide that yes, what she and Drax will do is go to Earth and get Peter Quill the perfect Christmas gift. Now, what is the perfect Christmas gift for Peter Quill? That's a good question and I'm not sure that Drax and Mantis actually answer it because what they decide to do is go to Earth and bring back Kevin Bacon. Yes, that Kevin Bacon. You see, they are labouring under the misapprehension that the adventures that they have seen Kevin Bacon have are in fact real, and that Kevin Bacon is a hero. A hero who saved a town just by dancing, that kind of thing. Meanwhile, Peter Quill, completely unaware that Mantis and Drax have nicked his spaceship and gone off to Earth, is wandering around nowhere and comes across an alien band who have, they say, been learning Earth traditions and they have composed a Christmas song. They then perform... Much to Peter Quill's chagrin, because of course, they're aliens and they get everything about Christmas wrong. So Quill spends most of the song going, no, that's not what that means. And no, nobody does that. And that kind of thing. It's, it's quite funny. And of course, that's leaning in to the variety roots of the Star Wars holiday special, which this, as I say, is clearly homaging. We then join Drax and Mantis as they search for Kevin Bacon. This is probably the longest segment of the show, and it, it, it's got its funny moments, you know, that clearly they're, they're the innocence abroad. They don't really know what L.A. culture is like. And, you know, they find themselves having their photographs taken because everyone assumes they're cosplayers and they, they mistake a cosplayer for Captain America. And 
find themselves in a gay bar and they get very, very, very drunk. And then they find themselves smashed out of their skulls on a pavement, wondering how they're ever going to find Kevin Bacon's house. When a woman from a sort of touristy kiosky shop says, hey, you want to know where the stars live? Take one of these. And she tries to sell them a map to the homes of the stars. Of course, they have no money left because they spent it all on shots. But Mantis sort of mind controls the woman into giving her the map anyway. And they go to the house of Kevin Bacon. Where Kevin Bacon is getting into the Christmas spirit. His house is all lit up with Christmas lights. He's waiting for his family to come home. He's watching some Christmas TV. And the doorbell goes, and it's Mantis. And he ignores it. And the doorbell goes again. And it's Mantis and Drax. And he kind of says, hey guys, you know, this is not cool. You know, this is my private house. You know, you've got to leave me alone. As, you know, as Star would if he was talking to stalkers at his ring doorbell. But of course, Mantis and Drax don't really understand any of this. And so still labouring under the misapprehension that they're doing a very good thing. They break into Kevin Bacon's house and Kevin Bacon runs away. Drax and Mantis pursue. Mantis carrying a sort of illuminated candy cane. She's nicked off his lawn. And Drax complaining that he's lost the little funny man, which was a sort of illuminated elf that he'd also picked up from the lawn, but then dropped. And he wants to go back for it, but Mantis won't let him because then Kevin Bacon will get away. So Kevin Bacon is running away. He calls 911. Obviously, he does on his mobile phone. And as he's running down the street, Mantis and Drax are pursuing. Huge, huge numbers of police arrive because this is Los Angeles, after all. And Mantis and Drax, let's just say resist arrest. There's a scene where officers are shooting at Drax and sort of hitting him in the torso. He's laughing as the bullets tickle. And, you know, the whole thing, playful laughs. It's not as horrific as that sounds. They get away from the police and get to Peter's ship with Kevin Bacon and set off back to nowhere. But it's not ongoing smoothly because they start to talk to Kevin Bacon about his exploits. And he kind of says, no, that didn't happen. You know, that that didn't happen. That was a role I played. That was a character. And at this point, Mantis and Drax realise that Kevin Bacon is, in fact, an actor and not, as they had assumed, a hero. And the problem with that is that they both regard actors as the lowest form of life. At which point, they think they've ruined Christmas. Mantis in particular is quite upset. But this is the only Christmas present they've got. So they decide, even though they believe that Peter Will will not be impressed with an actor for Christmas, they decide to front it out. And so back to nowhere they go. We then cut to Peter, who is sitting quietly in his room and he hears Christmas music. So he goes out into the sort of town square type space to investigate and as he gets to the middle of the square there's a signal and some uh, I think it's Nebula pulls a switch and all the Christmas lights come on so that everywhere is illuminated by coloured lights and Peter Quill is impressed and then another signal and I think it's Rocket pulls another lever and it starts to snow and Peter Quill is astounded by all of this and then people appear in the square and Groot wheels out a big gift-wrapped box. Peter is overwhelmed at the generosity of spirit and the kindness of his friends. And that, isn't it really? Isn't that the spirit of Christmas? Then he opens the box to find inside Kevin Bacon. And he is, as you would expect, somewhat appalled. Not because Kevin Bacon is an actor, but because it's Kevin Bacon. And they have given him an actual person and he you know tries to explain that you can't do that you know that is not a good thing to do and sort of Groot who is a teenager by this time 
Groot is kind of like, Groot. And Peter said, yeah, like I didn't just see you wheel this in. And he demands an explanation. And Mantis explains, well, you know, you told us that story about the worst Christmas ever and we wanted to give you the best Christmas ever. At which point, Kevin Bacon is inspired by the spirit of the season. And he calls home and says, hey, look, do you mind if I'm a little bit late? Because they've got some people here who really need to know the meaning of Christmas. And so Kevin Bacon joins the alien band and they all sing a song about Christmas, during which time we see various characters exchanging gifts. So Nebula gives Drax um, a, a, a sort of plushy elf, a little funny man. And we see Nebula give Rocket the Winter Soldier's metal arm, which, if you recall from End, was it Endgame or was it Infinity War? One of the two, where Rocket actually says, I'm going to get that arm. Well, he does. And finally, the final gift is that Mantis explains to Peter that she is, in fact, his sister. The ego was her father, too. And then we cut back to the animation. And we see the end of that story where Yondo cancels Christmas. And in fact, what Yondu has done is sort of realised something and thought better of himself. And we see the young animated Peter go into his bunk to find a gift-wrapped parcel, which he opens to reveal the classic Star-Lord blasters. This is all just good, hokey fun. I, I really, really enjoy every single bit of it sort of standout performances um uh, sean gunn as craglin um P- pom clementif as mantis dave batista is spectacular as drax uh, chris pratt is chris pratt as peter quill uh, you know the gang's all here you know they're all played by the right people we even get michael rooker doing the voice of yondu all just just really good fun and properly properly in the spirit of a proper holiday special. If you haven't seen it and you have access to Disney Plus, I heartily, heartily recommend it. It's not terribly long. It is just good family fun. And you know what? It's the time of year for that kind of nonsense. So whilst acknowledging that it is utter nonsense, it's brilliant nonsense. And I am absolutely here for it. I can only assume that they made it during the filming of Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3. I don't think it would have made sense to have tried to put something this expensive together just for its own sake. But, you know, the writing by James Gunn, very good. Uh, and it's, yeah, I'm repeating myself now, so I'm going to stop. But if you have access to Disney+, Plus, give it a watch. And while you're there, give Hawkeye a watch and then watch Die Hard. What could be a better Christmas viewing lineup? And so we move on to Christmas comics, which are all universally hokey and ridiculous but i love them anyway there is a story behind this which i don't think i've told on the show before and it's the time of year for stories too so settle down with a nice mug of cocoa i shall begin it was christmas in the early 90s i honestly forget which year but i was living in ripon and i couldn't go home for christmas because i was working this is before i could drive I had to work on Christmas Eve. I had to work on Boxing Day. I, there was just no feasible way for me to get home for Christmas Day. So I stayed in Ripon on my own. And you mean completely on my own because I was a student. All my friends were students and all my friends had gone home for Christmas. 
So I made myself a actually pretty good Christmas dinner for one, if I do say so myself. I was a good cook even then. And I watched some Christmas telly and I ate some turkey roast and I ate some, you know, drank some wine. And, you know, if I'm honest, possibly drank a little bit too much wine and got a little bit maudlin. And by about half past eight, half past nine at night, I was feeling pretty miserable, if I'm honest. I don't know what was on the telly. It wasn't good. It was probably only fools and horses. I was bored. I was lonely. And yeah. I was not in the best of places. It was dark outside. It was cold. You know, you know, just just picture the little match girl, and you're you're pretty much there. People, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, well, why didn't I just phone my parents or ring my girlfriend or possibly even FaceTime? And well, the answer to that is very simple. We couldn't. the The phone, the only phone in the house where I lived, was attached to the wall by a wire. And we used it as little as possible because it was deemed extremely expensive. You know, I'd had a couple of conversations over the phone earlier in the day, but there was no way. I, it was just not not the thing to do to ring people that late at night. So I was on my own and I was feeling, you know, pretty rubbish, to be honest. And then I remembered that there were a few sort of very old Christmas comics that I'd picked up at the comic store in York that I frequented at the time. Almost almost as a joke kind of thing, you know, on the understanding that Christmas comics were rubbish. And I sat down to read them, because what else was I going to do? There was nothing on telly. Yeah, I whacked some Christmas music. It was almost certainly now that's what I call Christmas. And I sat and I read these comics. And there were two. There was two Christmas with the Superheroes comics published by DC in the late-ish 80s. And there was a story about Superman who sees someone who's about to take their own life because they've broken down and they're so cold that they can't stand it anymore. And Superman warms up the man with his heat vision and uses his super speed to, to sort of crank up the car's battery and you know gets the guy to where he's going so he can spend Christmas with his family. And there's a story which I still regard as the best Christmas story of all time, actually, um, called The Silent Night of the Batman, which I think I have spoken about on the show before, probably last Christmas, uh, in which we see Batman spending the night of Christmas Eve on the roof of Gotham Police HQ singing carols, while all around the sort of reputation and presence of Batman sort of prevents bad things from happening. We see, you know, somebody rob a, a, a present from a kid and like, as they run away, they see someone, someone dressed as Batman with a Santa beard collecting for the blind, and he kind of gives it back. And we see uh, a young woman who is looking at a photograph of her sweetheart, her husband, it's not made clear, who's in military uniform, and she's looking at a letter, and clearly we're meant to think she's been told, you know, this guy either isn't coming back for Christmas or has been killed in action. I think this is a story from the Vietnam era, so, you know, killed in action was not that unlikely. And she goes, and we see her standing on a bridge, and she throws a rose into the water. And we think that maybe she's about to follow the rose. She's about to take her own life. And she sees the reflection of the bridge in the river. And it looks a bit like bat ears. And just as she's sort of noticing that, a military truck pulls up behind her. And the man from the photograph jumps out and they hug her. And it's a Christmas thing. And 
there's lots of things like that that happen. And then towards the end of the story, we see that Batman is still singing carols on the roof of the police station as dawn breaks. And he expresses surprise that, you know, there's been no call, no need for Batman in Gotham that night. For a moment, Chris, Commissioner Gordon seems quite ethereal and makes a makes a comment about, you know, the spirit of Christmas. And then Batman rubs his eyes and Commissioner Gordon's gone back to normal. And it's, it's, it's ridiculous, but it's brilliant. And I rooted through my comic collection that night. And I also found uh, uh, an issue of Amazing Spider-Man from, again, from the late 80s, illustrated by Todd McFarlane, which is how I know it was the late 80s. And, you know, in it, uh, Peter Parker and Mary Jane are evicted from their, their flat on Christmas Eve. And, you know, it's the usual sort of poor Peter kind of story. But then there's a resolution at the end where a, a, an unhoused person dressed as Santa kind of helps them. And MJ go around to Aunt May's house and they all have the best Christmas ever. And, yeah, it's, it's sentimental and ridiculous. But on that particular Christmas night, more than 30 years ago now, probably, all of those ridiculous little stories made me feel very, very much better. And so... By the time I'd finished reading all of these comics, it kind of late. It must have been about half past 11. And I looked out of the window and I promise you, I'm not making, I may be misremembering this, but I promise you I'm not making it up. This is genuinely how I remember that night. I looked out of the window and it had just started to snow. Not hard, just a gentle fall of snow. And just in that moment, everything just seemed so much better than it had. And I don't know whether I can credit the weather for that or the Christmas comics or the combination of all of that. And, you know, to quote Tim Minchin, it's sentimental, I know, but I just really like it. And yes, because I am what my wife would call a hoarder and what I would call a collector, I still have those Christmas comics. And yes, because I am a sentimental fool, I get them out and read them every Christmas day. Or in fact, sitting underneath my Christmas tree, even as I record this. And so we move on. Another geek-adjacent Christmas story. Something I actually discovered this was a thing when I was a teacher back in the day. And one of the very geeky kids, because of course I attracted the geeks, one of the very geeky kids told me about this. And so I looked into it, because I didn't believe it was a thing to start with. Uh, but I looked into it. And not only is it a thing, this thing that I'm about to tell you about, but I'm not telling you what it's called until we get there, story about why it's a thing if it's true and honestly i've got several sources for this story now and although it sounds ridiculous it does seem to have a grain of truth to it if this story is true it's just the coolest christmas story ever so top up your cocoa or possibly swap it for a nice little sherry and i'll begin again this is the story of why the North American Air Defense System tracks Santa every year. So come back with me to the early 1960s. We're not sure of the exact year, but most sources put it in the early 1960s. And imagine what that time was like. It's the beginning of the space race. We have Sputnik. We have the Mercury astronauts. We have Yuri Gagarin and Soyuz. And we are at the height of the Cold War, which means that deep Inside a mountain somewhere, it's probably not, actually, I'm probably just projecting from the film War Games, but deep in a bunker somewhere, at least, 
there were men in military uniforms. Somewhere in North America, fully watching the skies to make sure that Soviet missiles were not entering US or Canadian airspace. It's Christmas Eve and everyone is, you know, as relaxed as you can be if your job is discovering that you're about to be annihilated by nuclear weapons. At some point in the early evening of Christmas Eve, the phone rings. Now, that must have been quite tense because the phone in that particular bunker was only really supposed to ring for one reason. The only person who should have access to that phone number was the President of the United States. So the officer in charge of the station that evening picked up the phone, expecting to hear momentous news from the leader of the free world. What he actually heard was a pipey little voice that said, Hello? Is... Is that the air defence? Because on the end of the line was a child. Now, stories differ as to how he got that number. The most popular one is that he dialed the number at random and accidentally got through to NORAD. Now, I, I've done a bit of maths and I've studied some probability and I don't believe that for a second. But, you know, if the kid was from a military family or a diplomatic family and, you know, may have seen the number somewhere, you know, I, this is the least plausible bit of the whole story, if we're honest. But it is a bit of the story that many, many sources agree on. It's certainly part of the story that NORAD tells. So let's just accept it at face value and pretend it's plausible, shall we? Now, there are many things you're supposed to do if you're in charge of North American air defence and the phone rings and it's not the President of the United States. But it was Christmas Eve and the officer in charge was talking to a kid. So he figured, well, it's probably not a Soviet kid who's trying to in some way subvert American democracy. So let's just play along, shall we? And so he said, why? Because obviously he wasn't stupid enough to admit to being North American air defense, just in case, you know, it was some kind of Soviet trick. And the little voice says, I was just wondering if it was safe for Santa because of all the missiles and things. And, you know, again, that's plausible. Kids worry about stupid stuff. And, you know, there would have been a lot of stuff in the news about, you know, sort of the anti-missile protections and things that were being put in place and how the US airspace was defended and all of that. So, yeah, maybe the, maybe the kid was worried about Santa accidentally getting shot down because people thought he was a missile. And maybe maybe the officer in charge was possessed by the Christmas spirit. Maybe he was just a nice guy. Maybe he had kids. I don't know. But he played along and he said, yeah, no, don't worry, son. Yeah, it's OK. You know, Santa has special permission to fly in USA space. And in fact, we're tracking him now and everything's fine. And as these things tend to do, that story got out and it became a thing that NORAD would you know, announce. You know, Santa's flight path is clear kind of thing. Now, and well, certainly for the last 20 years, NORAD actually has a website. I, d I doubt it's actually run, run by NORAD, but it uses the NORAD name. It is actually sanctioned by NORAD. You know, it's official in that sense. They have a, 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 a website that you can go to on Christmas Eve that will show you exactly where in the world Santa is. You can follow his sleigh around the world in real time, travelling at the speed he would have to travel if he were visiting every country on earth in one night. It does take advantage of the fact 
that time zones are a thing. And it's a bit of geeky ridiculousness that I just really like. And I know that story's probably nonsense. And it was almost certainly dreamed up by a PR guy somewhere to make, you know, the United States immense military industrial complex look a little bit cuddlier. But do you know what? I don't care. It's just a cool, stupid, geeky, fun thing. And there is a little bit of me, actually, that thinks if there is somebody high up in the US military structure who still prepared to sign off on this every year just for giggles, that gives me a little bit of hope because it means that there is actually humans doing those jobs. And I think as long as those jobs are being done by real humans, I think we might be all right. So normally what I would say is there's a link to the appropriate website in the show notes, but I can promise you that just as in the last few weeks, there will be no show notes this week. I am a retailer. It's the room to Christmas. I do not have time for that. Unfortunately, it's an easy web address to remember. Just go to noradsanta.org. Norad is Norad Santa, sorry, is all one word. So that's um, N-O-R-A-D-S-A-N-T-A dot org. And you will find it all. If you can't remember that, just Google Norad Tracks Santa 2022 and you will find yourself in the right place. Bring it on a screen somewhere, or better still, if you've got one, project it on a wall with a projectory thing. Just having it on in the background is just a great backdrop to a Christmas Eve party. I have found. And before we go, there's just one more Christmas story I'd like to tell. I'm tempted to drop the science jingle in before I tell you this story, but I'm not going to, because it's Christmas. But it's sort of sciencey, and it sort of explains Santa Claus just a little bit. It certainly explains why Santa Claus has flying reindeer, and why he comes down the chimney. Obviously, it's Christmas, so I'm not about to tell you that Santa isn't real. What I am going to tell you is that Santa's traditions, the way he behaves, have been influenced by real stuff that real people have done around the world at various times. Now, there are people who will tell you that St. Nicholas, Santa Claus, uh, was a a, a first century bishop or something. And, you know, maybe St. Nicholas was, but that's not Santa, is it? What would a first century Turkish bishop be doing with a sleigh that was pulled by flying reindeer anyway? Also, how do you get reindeer to fly? Well, I do have some answers as to where this tradition has come from. And it's not from the real history of good old Saint Nick. No, it's from a tradition that is further north in Scandinavia, particularly the Swami people. These are an an indigenous group of people who live their lives following the migrating reindeer, which in the dead of winter often takes them north of the Arctic Circle, certainly wherever they are, it's a bit snowy. As a nomadic people, the Swami take their, I'm going to call them tents, they don't call them tents, I forget what they call them, they're sort of yurt-like things, perhaps a little bit like teepees, like North American teepees, that that kind of idea, and they take those with them and they erect them, and for a lot of the winter, these things are just covered in snow, and the easiest way in and out is through the hole in the roof that's there to let the smoke from the fire get out. And so if you want to visit a family living in such a place, you have to go in through the chimney. So that's where that bit comes from. But the flying reindeer, now that's, do they really fly? Really? Well, Santas do, 
But where does that idea that reindeer can fly come from? Well, the answer is very simple, in fact, and it's to do with moss. You see, in the in the high Arctic, in the winter, food for reindeer is a wee bit scarce. But something that is available to them is a moss that grows under the snow. And the reindeer, we know, sort of route through the snow to find this moss. Now, this moss has another use. It's not just reindeer food. It's also used in the ceremonies of that culture, and it is known to be hallucinogenic. So I don't know whether the reindeer can actually fly, but my word, they believe they can, and they think they are. The reason Rudolph can fly is because he is literally as high as a kite. Cultural knowledge got absorbed into the Christian traditions of that part of the world when Christianity made it to that part of the world, and from there to the rest of the world. And presumably the belief that people had in that story was picked up, and that's why Santa has flying reindeer, because Santa exists because we believe in him, and he does the things he does because those are the things we think he does. And you may think that maintaining a belief in Santa Claus is a ridiculous thing for a rational-minded geek like myself to do. But remember, whilst I am a rationalist, I am also a geek, which means I will always believe a man can fly. And so we come to the end, or at least towards the end, of this Christmas broadcast of geekiness. Uh, You may be able to hear that there is music in the background now. Uh, I'm doing my best to engineer it out, but that's because I'm having to record the last ten minutes of the show at the shop, which I would not normally do because it is not a quiet environment. Uh, But there you go, needs must. Uh, We've had another little minor um, computer incident which has robbed me of what should have been the end of this show and I'm now with very little time to spare cobbling something together so that we don't have dead air. One of the things that I had previously recorded and lost but am going to very quickly touch on is the Geek Community Notice Board. Um, It doesn't have a lot on it. Uh, I've got nothing for next week and obviously this show drops on a Thursday so um, there isn't a lot of this week left. What I can tell you is that you're too late to go to the board game night at Geek Retreat, and you're too late to go to the geeky movie quiz at the Everyman Cinema, because both are happening as you listen to this, if you listen to this when it drops, or they've already happened if you're listening to this after it drops, if that makes any sense at all. But that doesn't mean there aren't things going on at Geek Retreat this Christmas weekend. Obviously they're closed on Christmas Day, nobody is that keen a geek, but... Uh, They are open on Friday the 23rd and Saturday the 24th of December, and they do have a whole bunch of stuff going on. Do pop along and uh, take a look. While you're there, you could also buy some geeky Christmas presents for people. Something you could also do at Games Crusade, or Imagined Things, or any of the other independent local businesses that exist in Harrogate to your life and make the town a little bit more interesting. But as I should drop a plug for Destination Venus in here, we are also a small local independent business and we would be more than happy to sell you all manner of comics for Christmas delight. Uh, we are open uh, at Destination Venus uh, until 5.30 on Christmas Eve. Uh, Geek Retreat is also open on Christmas Eve, uh, as is Imagined Things. So plenty of time. If you haven't finished that Christmas shopping, plenty of time to get down to Games Crusade. 
uh, or any of the other places, Ingrid and Ray, they're fantastic, um, any of those places, and find something that you won't find anywhere else. Something unique. Something that says you made an effort. And something that, incidentally, helps keep our local community alive. Helps keep our local economy thriving. And before you ask, no, none of those independent businesses are paying me to say that. Um, I'm mentioning them because I like them all. Uh, you might want to go to the um, Harrogate Tea Rooms in the Westminster Arcade, where you used to be able to find Destination Venus all those years ago. Uh, they're great too. They're all family run, which also matters at Christmas, I think. Is this not a time for family? What I'm basically saying is this silly little podcast is recorded in a silly little town, but it's also a magnificent little town. And if you have, as I do, the pri privilege of living here, I want to encourage you to spend some money here too. Out of some like do-goody desire to sort of be a virtue signalling person, but because it's those small little independent businesses where the interesting stuff happens. Those are the little shops where you're going to find the interesting Christmas presents, the stuff that you actually remember for years to come. So just bear that in mind. There are a couple of shopping days left to go before Christmas, and um, you can spend that money wisely and also earn bearing points. So there you go. <laughs> and there you were thinking I was going to leave the boring preachy part out of the Christmas episode. But now we are getting very close to the end. We're nearly out of time. So I do just need to mention that if you have a geeky event happening in the new year, you can advertise it here. Just email info at destinationvenus.co.uk. Geek Community Notice Board is always open. And actually, that in mind, two dates for your diary for January already. Uh, both January the 8th. Uh, January the 8th is the day the Ian Kennedy exhibition at the Mercer Art Gallery closes. So not much time left to be able to go and see that. They are closed for a lot of the time between Christmas and New Year. Do check the Mercer Art Gallery's website before making a special trip. Although it's right next to the ice rink. So, you know, if that's closed, just go skating. It's fine. And although I am not aware of anything happening at Geek Retreat between Christmas and New Year, I can tell you that also on January the 8th, they have one of their makers' fairs where you can go and meet local artists and creators and, more to the point, buy some of their incredible art and other crafty stuff. That's January the 8th at Geek Retreat. So it's a couple of weeks from now. Uh, after Christmas, when perhaps the Christmas decorations will have come down, you'll be feeling that your house looks a little bit bare, you're going to want something just to brighten up a bit, picking up some local artwork and local crafts at the Geek Retreat Makers Market. Sounds like the perfect thing to me. But that's it. I'm done trying to advertise things for you now. Time to spend our last few minutes just getting into the geekiness of Christmas. And, of course, to tell you that we will be back next week in that weird period between Christmas and New Year when, essentially, all there is to eat is cheese and you never want to see turkey ever again in your lives. You know, that week. And we'll be recovering from the Christmas spirit by taking a look back over the highlights of the Geeky 2022. So if you have any thoughts on stuff you'd like to be covered, stuff you think stood out for you in the world of geek this year, let me know in the usual way by emailing info at destinationvenus.co.uk. You never know. You might even make the cut. 
has been an odd year in Geek, hasn't it? So there's lots to go over, but if you don't want us to miss your favourites, as I say, let me know what they are. We've had movies that came out, movies that didn't come out, and of course, in the case of Batgirl, movies that were unceremoniously dumped and erased from all existence, which I'm still a bit cross about. You can possibly hear that in my voice. But it's also been a great year for comics. It's been a great year for books. It's even been a great year for video gaming, but I'm not really qualified to comment. Because, as regular listeners will know, my last gaming console was a Dreamcast, so I am not exactly up to date, and my finger is very much not on that particular pulse. There were the usual controversies, the usual people who got annoyed with each other. There were some fantastic achievements in the worlds of science and space. We finally got our mission to the moon off the ground. There was some progress with the SpaceX Starship rocket, and of course, the guy behind SpaceX accidentally bought Twitter and then ran it into the ground. So it's been a busy year in geeky news, and I'm kind of looking forward to looking back over all of it, if you can look forward to looking back on something. Might need to rethink that phrase. Hmm. But that is next week. Between now and then, we have a little matter of Christmas to get out of the way, and everybody here at Geeking with Destination Venus, and indeed everybody at Destination Venus, would like to take this opportunity to wish you a very, very Merry Christmas, Happy Holidays, Happy Hanukkah, Happy Kwanzaa, Happy whatever it is you're celebrating, even if it's just having an extra day off work. I hope you thoroughly enjoy indulging in all of your own personal Christmas traditions. You may not rummage through old comics boxes to find those copies of Christmas comics from days past to read on Christmas Eve like I do, but I bet you do something. And whatever it is, just enjoy it. Unapologetically. Because unapologetically enjoying the things that we love is what makes us geeks. It's why we're here. And that's probably doubly true at Christmas, isn't it? So whether you want to watch It's a Wonderful Life for the 400th time, or indulge in the best Christmas movie of all time, which is clearly Batman Returns, whatever it is, I really hope you enjoy doing it. If you're seeing family, I hope you're all going to get on. If you're not seeing family, I hope you have plenty of friends around you. And if you are spending Christmas alone, remember that there's always somebody out there somewhere. Even if there are only Batman singing Christmas carols in Gotham City. But however you're spending Christmas this year, I hope it's full of happiness and joy and light and love and laughter. And perhaps other things beginning with them. We will see you next week when hopefully the bells will have stopped jingling, the chestnuts have finished roasting on an open fire, and people have stopped fat-shaming that poor goose. Until then, at this time of year more than any other, be kind to yourself, be kind to absolutely everybody else, and above all else, just stay geeky. And so once again, from all of us, To all of you, sincerely, have a very, very Merry Christmas. We'll see you next week. Take care.